Okay, people. It was only a matter of time. This is the postdoc PT experience. Nick and I were both orthopedic residents, or we were orthopedic residents, and now we're both studying for the orthopedic specialist examination. So it's only a matter of time that we did an episode about studying for the orthopedic specialist examination. This is episode number 28. This week, Nick and I sit down and we talk about the OCS exam. Now, when I say we talk about the OCAS exam, I don't mean we're summarizing the CPGs. I don't mean we're summarizing the current concepts. This episode's instead about what it means to be studying for the OCS exam. Some of the questions that came up while we were having this conversation is, does your clinical practice improve when studying for the OCS exam? What even defines an orthopedic clinical specialist? Who sets that criteria? Is the test about knowledge acquisition or is it more about clinical decision-making and how do you measure those two things in the first place? And so even though most of the conversation extends beyond the, the what to know for the test, we do get into sharing our approaches to studying and our opinions on some of the supplemental material out there, um, our opinions on whether they're good, whether they're bad, what our thoughts are on those programs as a whole. If you're studying for the OCS exam or really any other specialist examination for that matter, I think this could be a valuable episode for you. Um, and it, more, more importantly, if you're questioning your preparation tactics, I really think that this could be a valuable episode for you. Nick and I are not currently orthopedic specialists. However, we are currently going through the study experience right now. We are both living the burnout to the fullest and we want you to know you are not alone. I think it's really good timing for this episode as many people studying for the orthopedic exam can probably relate uh, to some of these feelings that Nick and I are experiencing. So if any of what we just said sounds interesting, please stick around. Without further ado, this is the postdoc PT experience. Nicholas Gula. Matthew Mary. It's good to be back with you, man. Dude, it's been a while. How, uh, I can't remember. When was the last time we were on together? It's got to be oh, at least a month ago, right? It's got to be about a month ago. We've both been kind of doing our own thing, and it only seems right to bring it back together. Talking along. Yeah. Dude, we always got to come back. I, I hope you guys are listening. You love this as much as we do, because we love this. <laughs> No, that was Let's, cheesy. That was pretty cheesy. Let's jump on that note. Little Parmesan sprinkle. On that note, let's jump into this. <laughs> we got a lot to talk about tonight. Wait, but before you do, I know you hate this, but I'm going to teach you something tonight. All right. What this are you going to hit me? with all of my patients this past week? Okay. Do you know the origin of the word Bluetooth? Nope, can't even take guess. Take a long pause as no. Yeah, right. You're right. Have you ever thought about that before, though? Like, where did that word come from? Bluetooth. Uh, my only thought is it's something dental related. <laughs> but it connects devices together. Why would it be dental related? I don't know. Maybe there's something out there in the dentistry world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you ready for this, guys? So 
don't quote me on the year, but I think it was the year 958 AD. We're talking 10th century. Some Scandinavian king joined two warring tribes, right? And he joined those two warring tribes and created whatever province and that became whatever country that there is out there. I apologize if you're in that country and you're listening. But back when Bluetooth was created, the creators from that Scandinavian region were like, how do we name this technology that we're creating that joins two devices together? They're thinking they're going back and forth. And apparently they decided on this king. Well, okay, that doesn't name why it's called Bluetooth though, right? But exactly the fact is that this king's nickname was, you guessed it, Bluetooth. Because he had a rotten blue front tooth. So that's where we get our connection. Interesting. Has nothing to do with uh, actual audio and technology. <laughs> nope. Very interesting fact. I'm going to have to uh, fact check it though. You're going to have to, but you know, get back to me when you fact check that and you see it's right. All I right, want to play will. the I told you so card, but you know, I've, uh, I've been fact checked by my patients this whole week. <laughs> None of them believe it. So what have you been up to, man? Well, what are we doing? Officially in the full swing of things. Um, yep, as far as work goes, but, uh, more importantly, something that's taking a little bit more precedence right now is the upcoming OCS exam. Is that what we're going to talk about today? I can see why we probably should. Yeah, I mean, we're taking it in, I guess, a month now, right? So, fine. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll get this out of the way. We'll have our, our annual, semi-annual OCS or CS exam questionnaire talk, podcast, presentation, extraordinaire. Let's yeah, go. Whatever you want to know. What do, we, what do we talk about with this? What, are, what is there to talk about with studying for the OCS? Well, what, what honestly, are your first of all, what are your difficulties? Well, I think the most important question is, what the hell are you studying from? <laughs> oh, he's not wrong. And there's a well, lot of information yeah. out there. That's what it feels like, right? It's like, so, so for people listening that haven't studied for the OCS, what, like, there's no like NPTE study book that you can buy from score builders or from therapy ed or anything like that. There, there are these courses out there from the, the most popular, at least are the, the MedBridge and the, uh, what's the other one? The Evidence, Evidence Emotion. Emotion course. And they, they put together this study plan and it's basically, I don't know, Matt, I would, I would say it's like a, uh, like a blackboard site type of site where you go on, you have your professors post links to, to articles and to lectures that they've done and they just throw it at you and you just see what sticks. Yep. I would agree. I think that's a pretty spot on analogy. So it's like, there's no like one thing to study from. It's like, you got to know everything. I, the, the consensus is 
okay, you need to know the current concepts. You need to know the CPGs. You need to know some of the uh, clinical prediction rules per right. se. But I feel like that's like the, the most simple level, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think those three things that you just named really is the, just the, the foundation of it. It's more of that black and white knowledge. Like you need to know the content that's in all of these documents because the way that the questions are written are going to be directed at this material specifically. But I think that it goes even further beyond that. And this is where part of my frustration with studying comes from is it's really, it's really an assessment of critical analysis and critical thinking yeah, you need to know the knowledge, but really what the, the crux of the, per, or the, the crux of the exam is, is what's your critical thinking? What's your critical analysis? What's your clinical decision-making? Are you reasoning at a way that the, the board declares as being a clinical specialist? Do you think that's why it takes so long to hear back? Because they have to deem what a clinical specialist is and see if the questions are actually <laughs> valid or not. I'm sure that that has part of the reason why. I think another part of the reason why is that the board doesn't even meet until like a month or two after the test is over. Fantastic. Well, if anybody out there is on the board and they're listening, give us some insights, tweet us, send us a DM on Instagram or Facebook, slide in there, let us know. Yeah, it would be nice to know. <laughs> this, this brings up, this is going to be a little bit of an aside, and, and I talked about this with Colin, Dr. Christensen on our last podcast. And this is something that's like I thought of and it relates to what we just said. And it's like, do you ever think we're on this podcast, we're, we're talking to each other, we're talking to our guests, we're making these assumptions or maybe not assumptions, but we're putting our opinions out there. We're making and stating what we believe is something to be true. Do you ever feel like, Hey, we're, we're young clinicians still like, well, what do we, what right do we have to make these assumptions and to think these things where, I mean, yeah, we, we finished a residency program, but like, so what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I honestly, I think about that probably every day is <laughs> who am I to say this to you, uh, whether it be to a patient or a colleague or whatever the situation is, is what are my qualifications? It makes me question all the time. Am I the right person to be talking about this? But at the end of the day, I kind of just remind myself someone has to. And I don't think that there really can ever be too many people talking about this stuff, um, particularly in the era of information, um, particularly in an era where people are a little a little bit more cautious about what they say and they're a little bit more reserved about what they say because they're concerned about other people's opinions of them or I don't know being canceled to bring it back to the the Twitter world but <laughs> right it's, it's the PC culture right sure absolutely and but I'm not I mean, talking personal computer yeah <laughs> yeah do we still have those anymore <laughs> oh, I'm on one right now Oh, are you? No, it's a laptop. I count it as a personal computer. But yeah, no, I think I, I agree. It's like you, you look at these things and like, like, who are we? But like you said, though, I think, I think you, you really captured my thought is like, if not us too, 
right? Exactly. And if you're listening to this and you're like, well, who the hell are you guys to say anything about this? Like, great. I, we're we're going to be the first people to tell you we're nobodies. We're, we're somebody that we're trying to be somebody's, but we're, we're making it in this world. We're, we're grinding, we're pushing through this and we want you to do that too. And we want you to push us and make us think about things a little bit more and like, like, sure. So you might not agree with everything we say. We don't agree with everything we say, right? No, I could say something tonight and tomorrow or the next day when I listen to this, I'll say to myself, well, not quite sure why I said that. But, uh, you know, the nature of podcasting is the next time I come on, I can uh, have the opportunity to correct myself and make my change of opinion public because I'm not married to my opinions. That's the thing, though. Like, you got to be willing to recognize when your opinion is, quote unquote, right or wrong in the situation, right? I don't think a lot of people do that. Or they don't even put themselves out there because they're they are thinking cancel culture PC and saying like I don't want to say anything at all. Then you're going to be safe. You don't have to be wrong, but you're not going to be right ever. Sure, absolutely. And I think that's the world that PT is kind of stepping into as we move forward in the era of social media and honestly making a name for yourself because that's the that's right now how PTs are making a name for themselves is in the social media world mostly as far as access to people and access to information and if you're afraid to come out and voice your opinion on something or comment on that post on facebook that you disagree with what someone has to say because you're afraid of sparking a conflict i mean i mean maybe maybe we're in different boats maybe we seek conflict and we seek seek people telling us our we're wrong and seek calling people out but i don't know no i don't think that's what it is though because you're you're looking at the situation and you don't do just one side don't just look for the negative sure the negative comes up right and but look for the positive and comment on the positive things like sure if you're not going to use social media if you're going to follow that uh that documentary the social dilemma fine do your thing this is the 21st century this is a part of our life we have to embrace it or die and with that sentiment I still feel nervous as hell when I'm like going to send whatever out into the, let's say the doctor of physical therapy students sure. group. And I'm just like commenting on that. Like, do you get that feeling where you're like, I, I want to say oh, yeah. something that's like really in my gears. Yep. But I'm nervous. I know. No, <laughs> you're a hundred percent right. Every time we publish an episode, the only thing I can think about is, what if one of my patients hears this and they come to the clinic and they start talking about it? Then what? What am I going to say when they quote something that I say from the episode? Has that happened yet? No, thank goodness. <laughs> I don't think that will ever happen. I don't think our patients are ever going to listen to this. I doubt it. I highly doubt it. You know, but if they do, and you know, I mean, what we're saying is I think important. So maybe you never know, or at least their parents, you know, right <laughs> yeah Thanks, you're right love you no uh i it, it's it's important to, to think about right think about something before you say it but at the same time what's what's the point of living if you're not going to express your opinion and sure and try to help people out you don't know if your your comments going to help somebody out either right exactly like a lot of other people probably think the same way you do it's just like that age-old 
thing in class where they're like, don't be afraid to ask questions. Everybody else has probably the same question if you have it. Exactly. Right? Like more people probably feel that way and are probably afraid to voice that opinion. So I don't know, maybe you can help them break out a little bit by, by showing the fervor of ending that, but you know, that's my side. Sorry. No, I, th- I think that's a fair opinion. You're entitled to your opinion, Nick. I won't hold it against you. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. So let's get back to the OCS now that I uh, totally went 360 on that. Yeah, what an aside. So it's just, it was like, it was just really just something that's been on my mind recently. I'm just like, I got to get this out there, especially if people don't listen to the end of our episodes. And that's usually when it comes up is when like the meat of the actual podcast comes right. in there and we're like really getting into it. It was like, I got to hit this right away. Like, let's, if I can, let's do it. So. I appreciate you doing that, but uh, yeah, OCS. What uh, what are your what are your initial thoughts about studying? So you're you're getting through some of these bigger, more solidified concepts, right? You're watching some right. of the videos. I know you're doing MedBridge. I'm doing yep. EIM. We're doing a little different. You know, you burn out yet, like me? Oh, I'm pretty damn close. <laughs> I'm pretty close. I'm regretting scheduling my test for March 11th. I should have done a week or two earlier. But you know, yeah, I did the eighth. I I'm I'm happy I did the eighth. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I I like to think that. But needless to say, yes, I've been using MedBridge. I just finished the last lecture series, so now it's uh, two practice tests to go, and I'm gonna retake the first two practice tests because for me, taking the practice test is the best way to learn material, learn from mistakes. It's really that active learning which uh, MedBridge yeah. loves to talk about so much, but I agree with them. I think they make a really good point that you can't just read the CPGs over and over again. You can't just read the current concepts. And just to clarify, some people can. I can't. I really need that active learning. I know there's a lot of people that really need that active learning. So now it's test time. Now it's just practice tests, and it's just a matter of did I retain anything from the CPGs and current concepts? What did you think of the uh, the lectures from MedBridge? Would you recommend them to other people? Or did you think they were mostly a waste of time? I would recommend some of them. To be completely the an shoulder open... episode. What's that? What about the shoulder lecture? Oh, I don't know. It was so long ago. I don't remember it. <laughs> that was the first one. And that was the last one I watched. <laughs> I know. To be honest, it really depended on who the presenter was. There and I'm not okay, gonna I'm not gonna name names and it it, it their the MedBridge lecture series is by no means a reflection of them as a faculty member somewhere, but it felt at times like this MedBridge was just something they were asked to do and they were like sure, and it there were so many lectures that you could tell that the presenter was just reading from a script, and I I was just like I I can read this script I don't need to sit here and watch this entire video to walk away and not really learn anything from it. It felt like at least in the first one, and I know I'm not giving it a chance that it was like back to PT school kind of lecture. And it was like, here's the prevalence. Here's this, here's that. Like, yeah, you need to know that, but like, give me a little bit more into like the why. Sure. But I'm to be completely fair to MedBridge. Like I think they're trying to capture a wider audience. I don't think that they're trying to capture people that just came through residency or fellowship or whatever. I think they're really trying to capture people that maybe they've been practicing for a while and 
they're like, I'm ready to do the next thing. I'm ready to take the OCS exam. And I think MedBridge is trying to cater to a wider population than just people who have just been through the fire of a residency. That's a fair assessment. I, I could see that. I'll give MedBridge that. Good, good on you for, for recognizing that. Sure. But, but their tests are really hard. Oh my God, the tests are so hard. <laughs> I don't know if you saw, but I actually posted a question on the Facebook, the Doctor of PT Students Facebook page saying, because I hadn't seen anything about it. I was like, how are people scoring on the MedBridge OCS practice exams? Because I'm terrified that I don't know anything about orthopedics right now. <laughs> what do they say? Everyone said, yeah, I did horrible on the MedBridge exams and I passed the OCS test. So it's a little, little bit of weight off the shoulders. That's good. Kind of like the, uh, what was that? The therapy, like the therapy ed? Oh, yeah. The yep. You get 60s really on the therapy eds and you're good to go. They just want you to fail and push yourself harder. I think that's a good actually study plan. It's like yeah, they're knowing that reverse psychology <laughs> to make you to make you scared and push harder. I yeah. like that. <laughs> or defeated and want to stop studying. However, you want to look you at feel, it. So, so you're back into into practice now, right? Yeah. Do you feel like you're treating your patients? You had what, like ten people today, probably? Yeah, give or take. Yep. Give or take, maybe a little more. So like with those people, with those patients, do you feel like you're a better clinician because you've put the work in? Because I mean, let's, let's face it, like the, the test in the OCS after your name is just letters. Sure. Hmm. Do I feel like I'm a better clinician because I'm studying for the OCS? No, probably not. No, you don't think so? No, I feel like I'm a better clinician be- because I went through a residency program. I feel like you I'm don't feel like you picked up anything from studying. Sure. Maybe it's yeah. just one, one less time that I have to open the CPG to look at if I should do this certain intervention or not. As far as like base level of understanding of what's currently recommended versus not. So for instance, like plantar fasciitis, let's say I get a physician referral and the physician wants me to do ultrasound. Well, Probably not on the top of my priority list, especially if the patient has never had ultrasound before. But as far as like, but as far as like interacting with patients and getting the buy-in and doing all of these other, what's your, what's your word? Soft skills, all of these more like soft skills. Yeah. I I don't want to say more important, but equally important things that make you a good clinician or a great clinician. And I don't think just, studying for the OCS and the knowledge of that makes you a, or at least me personally, a better clinician. See, that's, I think I, I think I differ with you on that because I think it made me a better clinician. And I think that also speaks to the differences between maybe our residencies. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say your residency from my perspective of what I've heard from you is that you guys were really factual and into the the articles and into like what's what's going on what's in the literature and knowing the literature Mm -hmm. would that be would that be fairly consistent yep i i completely agree we were definitely very evidence evidence heavy and then that was more of like our supplemental learning in the residency program was the 
that what is the current state of the literature? And then the mentorship was now focused on how do we apply that literature, but also focus on the patient relationship. So that was a little different than mine, just from the, yeah, we had to read articles and we had to do X, Y, and Z, but that wasn't the emphasis. We never got like quizzes on the articles or anything. We, we mainly got with our didactic learning just from the, the different specialists or subspecialists within the, uh, the Ohio State community that came out and did that stuff and presented to us and we presented to each other. And I think it was more of like just the current concepts mm-hmm. from the side of like what's actually current happening in 2020, 2021, what's the, the latest and greatest, what's like, what are we really focusing on? Like we, we worked at at least here a lot of soft skills and built that into it too. So mm-hmm. I thought that was one of my weaknesses actually going in is like, what is the, the pure accepted proven evidence say, you know what I mean? Sure. Well, so I feel like it was a help for me. Okay. I mean, I, that's fair. I think it probably comes a lot from your background. I'm, I could totally see if I had not done a residency at Drexel and I had just gone out and practiced and I, but I wouldn't know what the best evidence is by any means. Sure. But I, I mean, I, th- I think that's a really good point that you brought up is it does kind of depend on your background coming into making that decision that you're ready to study for the OCS. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested to, to hear Kyle, Dr. Smith, my roommate, and uh, see his take on it too. I, I have to ask him. I haven't asked him yet, but he's mm-hmm. also studying for the OCS and kind of pushed him into it. Buddy, accepted <laughs> the challenge. Oh, peer pressure, Nick. I'm, I'm interested to see. I'm interested to see if he uh, if he feels the same way as me, just because mm-hmm. he he went the the classical traditional route of just going out into the real world right after PT school. Sure, I bet the answer is yes. Yeah, it would be that would be an interesting conversation. You should uh, report it, back. Like it, it really, it really centers you into like what where the evidence is like we know like let's talk uh, like fellowship right now like i'm in fellowship i'm doing some of the the more biomechanical hands-on based things like i don't know you could picture it more as like the dunning side of of the spectrum if you would from the manual therapy world and like sure there's some evidence out there for it but it's not like like let's face it there's not like pure evidence to say, I do this mobilization, I'm going to get this effect. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Or you see this on evaluation. This is what this means. Sure. So question for you when you're reading the CPGs or the current mm-hmm. concepts, do you approach the them? Concepts. What's that? Don't read the current concepts. Yeah, I did read them and then I've been skimming them. It's it's a lot. Is it's it worth it? Is it's it worth nice, it? It's a good anatomy review, to be completely honest with you. And there's some subtle there's some subtle things that will likely appear on the OCS, but I can't speak 100% certain because I haven't taken the OCS. And if I did take the OCS, I can't tell you because that would be a breach of contract. But so we're not I breaching think, any contracts here, people, because we haven't taken it. <laughs> I can almost guarantee you, and I will bet you a beer on this right now, 
Oh, I like beer. That there's going to be a question or two about how to position the hip to do a long access distraction to gain a certain range of motion. Okay. As far as like prone with like trying to gain extension, like prone, having the patient prone with your long access distraction and slight internal rotation and abduction or something like that to gain extension. And I don't remember entirely if that's correct, but I just, I remember reading about something like that in the current concept. Better be correct. Cause I'm just going to remember that fact. <laughs> I don't have to look at the current concepts. <laughs> there you go. Well, I hope I'm right for anyone that's no. listening. If I'm wrong, let me know, please. <laughs> I'm going to look at them. I, I think it's, it should be smart to read over them. I'll, I'll take a week or two to read over them at the end. Also, but, uh, for anyone that's listening, if you have the current okay. concepts and you're studying for it, there are some great practice questions at the end of the monographs. Good to know. I didn't even know that myself. See? And the oh, case studies. This. Cool. So what was, your, uh, what was your original question to me? I, I forget. Oh, I don't remember either. <laughs> you said something about the CPGs or... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, sorry. Aside. If you get an aside, I get an aside. This is your last aside. Okay. Like a mulligan. So, well, we all know I have plenty of those. At least I do. <laughs> My question was, how do you approach the CPGs? Do you approach the CPGs as what should I do in the clinic or what should I not do in the clinic? Hmm. Well, I feel like the correct answer should be both, right? It gives you... It, it doesn't give you a roadmap of what is the right or what is the wrong. It gives you the current state of the evidence. Correct? Right. Yeah, you're right. So, so, so that should be the, should be the correct answer. How do I use it? <laughs> I use it for what is the correct thing to do? Yeah. That's interesting that you say that because I use it as what is the thing I should not do in the clinic. I want to know. <laughs> really? I, I do. I want to know what I should not do in the clinic based on what the current evidence is. And if the CPG does, doesn't say I should not do this, it means that I need to do, and this is my opinion, it means I need to either, one, just do it and hope it works. But really what it means for me is that I, I need to do more research and I need to see if what I want to do has any evidence to support it. So I look at, I look at it in a little bit of a different way. And before we get into that, like, why, why do you think you look at it that way? Is it more so you're, you're looking for things that are, are proven and effective or you're looking to not waste people's time? Like what, what's the, what's the, what's the mindset around that? I'm curious to how you're thinking. E, all of the above. Um, <laughs> I think it kind of comes down to fundamentally who I am as a person. I don't want to be wrong. One, I don't want to be wrong. Yeah, but kind, kind of. I don't want to be kind wrong for way. myself. One, because I don't want to tell a patient to do something that there's no evidence to support the, the use of that. For instance, ultrasound for plantar fasciitis. Right. I, I, unless they've had ultrasound in the past and it's worked for them and they live by it and then sure, whatever, we'll do ultrasound. But one, I don't want to be wrong. 
And I think too is I don't want to do something that we know from the evidence is not the best thing to do for the patient. And if I'm already what, practicing, what sorry, go ahead. What does wrong mean? I don't want to be wrong. How, how do you be wrong in your treatment session? Well, I think you could be wrong if you chose to do ultrasound for plantar fasciitis instead of doing night splinting um, orthotics or stretching instead of just doing 45 minutes of ultrasound in your treatment session. Obviously, that's a hyperbole, but... Okay, yeah, in that situation, sure. You're wrong if you do your whole session that way. <laughs> I just, I just keep thinking back to like devil's advocate or like thinking that the patient's always right. And I know you, you, you caveated this all by if they have bought into the placebo effect of it, then why the hell not? But right. I don't know. I, I feel like, like you could justify five minutes worth of ultrasound if there's somebody that is a little bit more on the higher irritability scale and they they are like a little bit of like catastrophizing the little bit of uh, like self-dependent type, you know, I, like, I, I don't know, like, I'm not saying I do this all the time, but I'm saying if this is somebody that fits into that mold, I probably wouldn't say no to five minutes worth to set the person more at ease from the side yeah. of, but so I don't know. I, that's where I'm like, it's, it's not wrong, but I, I understand where it's like, is it a hundred percent proven or is it even like 50% sure. proven? No. And let me reframe it this way because the CPG doesn't say it's wrong. It says we recommend that you do not do this because we do not have any evidence to show that it is beneficial. But right. I think it's also really important to point out that it's really easy to just read the recommendations and not have any understanding of the literature they're using to make the recommendations. Do you think you shouldn't just read the summaries? You really say that if you really want to know and really want to do well, that you should read actually the CPG and not just the summary page in the front or the back. I wish I could answer that question for you. I haven't taken the test yet, Nick. No, I know, but you've, I'm, I'm assuming you've read some of I think, the full CPGs. I think as an aspiring orthopedic clinical specialist, you should read the whole thing. You should be aware of the, the studies they're using to make their recommendations. I would agree with that. I'm on board. Because it's, it's the current best available evidence they have, even though a lot of the evidence they have is not that great, but it's, it's the best available that they found at the time. It's the current best level C evidence out there, buddy. Exactly. <laughs> No, exactly. I, I mean, I agree with that. I, I find it interesting that, that, you, that you come from that side of things. And I totally get that from, from knowing you as a person, from, from seeing you treat before, from just like, like I, I feel like that fits your style. Whereas I think my reverse style, I don't, I don't know. It, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying I'm right. Like, I'm saying the way I look at it from the sense of I, I look to see what's like the best thing to do is I know most of these things aren't supported. Right. Right. I, I feel like it's 50% of the things that we do as PTs, like flat out don't have grade a 
evidence to support. Sure. Right. So I feel like I should know the things that do have that grade A evidence to really make sure I hammer that home, but tailor the rest of the appointment around the patient in front of me and what I deem their needs to be based off of not only their clinical presentation, their impairments, their whatever secondary impairments, their medical history, their pharmacology history, whatever, but also like their yellow flags and just like who they are as a person. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think to kind of give an example based on what it sounds like you were just saying, and I guess this kind of goes against what I was saying before, how it's, I approach the CPGs as what not to do. And I approach evidence as what not to do. And this is a case example. So I was treating somebody that has a C6 cervical radiculopathy, chronic in nature. So I was obviously being familiar with the evidence. I was, oh, traction, let's try traction because we had a positive response to manual distraction and we met some of the other predictor rules for the um, traction minute or the traction clinical prediction rule. Right. We did traction. It was great. She loved it. It uh, her sy- symptoms started to centralize. She no longer has forearm pain in the C6 dermatome, and then but she's still having a ton of scapular pain. And so I again being familiar with the evidence, and this isn't a validated measure by any means, but with the uh, manipulation for like shoulder pain uh, classification. And again, just to kind of bring this whole point home is that this is kind of fitting your perspective of approach just so that you understand that I know where you're coming from. Thank you. I appreciate that. I didn't really have any clinical evidence to, to justify the use of a upper thoracic manipulation for her scapular pain. Because her, we know from the literature that C6 radiculopathy can present with scapular pain. And she did not meet the clinical prediction rule for the manipulation for like those radiculopathy symptoms or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I really think that you will respond well to a manipulation. Like I just was thinking it for days and days and days. And eventually she was, traction was no longer making her any better than what she was. So I said, let's do a manipulation. And so I did, an, I did an upper thoracic spine manipulation and her scapular pain disappeared completely. And I didn't really have 100% evidence to justify that decision because she didn't meet the clinical prediction rule. She had less than three of the five variables to meet that clinical prediction rule. And please don't ask me what it is because I can't tell you off the top of my head right now. Okay, I won't put you on the spot on, uh, online. But I know for a fact she didn't meet it and she still had a positive response. And to me, what's most important to, about that is sure evidence is one thing, but it really comes down to like understanding your patient and your clinical why do you think she responded? Why do you think she responded positively? expectation you think that's solely why i think that's a big part of it i think the other part of it is your inner regional dependence but so you're saying 50 percent was psychosocial 50 percent was biomechanical 
if you want to put numbers on it, I would say it's relatively close to that. Okay. I, I do want to put numbers on it. And uh, sure, I don't know if that's right or wrong or not. It's just wanted to put uh, a feeling behind your sentiment. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. What was I going to say about that? I think that, I think that physical therapy research is inherently limited. I agree, 100%. I think the research in general medically on the body is inherently limited. Just like you see how hard some of these just medical researchers work and just how little ground they gain sometimes. And sure, we, we make great breakthroughs like the COVID vaccine or whatever, but like it's not easy and you got to pump a lot of money into it and you need a lot of subjects and all that. Like now compare that to the physical therapy world where we get an N of 100. Mm -hmm. Great. That's representative of the population for this specific thing. Like, no, sorry. Like most of the evidence that that's out there, if you look, like, I don't know, do you feel this way? But I feel like if I'm really reading it and I'm really taking home the sentiment of this and we're looking at whatever dry needling for cervical pain, Sure, you dry needle everybody with cervical pain. There's going to be twenty percent that respond, and you're not going to say that that's that's good. Right. But if you dry needle, maybe the the people that do actually need it and aren't just under the umbrella of cervical pain, or you you dive into everything that makes their cervical pain their cervical pain, and you say this is why I'm going to say you will respond to dry needling. Mm -hmm. Then you look at it. I don't know. I think that would be different. I agree. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, as evidence-based as my residency experience was, there were very few journal clubs and articles that I walked away from that I knew the answer to the question that I ask myself every time I read an article. And that question is, how does this article change my clinical practice? And I would say 90% of the time, What's that? You're like, I don't know. Maybe I could use it in this really specific situation. Right. Or I don't know. Maybe I could use it if I have my general patient and they might fit into this one right. method, maybe. Exactly. Or there are other comorbidities or there are other injuries that they have or their car accident two years ago would change the game a little bit, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You're spot on. And <laughs> I think I want to raise this perspective as far as what it means to be evidence-based and really what it means to be an orthopedic clinical specialist. Right. As an orthopedic clinical specialist, is it more about the clinical reasoning or is it more about knowledge of the evidence? And I don't know the answer to this question. I would hope it's clinical reasoning. So would I. But we're also not orthopedic specialists, so, you know. Just hopefuls. <laughs> Just hopefuls. Nor do, we write, maybe, nor do we write the exam. Right, right. It's, it's, you're right. Like, I don't know. I don't think the exam would ever come close to what it means to actually reason critically. I mean, it, it can't, it's just like inherently impossible. 
right for for you to put down a question and consistently get i don't know the the opinion across that you want to get across and the point and there's multiple ways of doing things but like whatever like that's an aside but i think i think you bring up a, an interesting point where it's like we're kind of attacking evidence-based treatment right there yeah a little bit but it's not attacking it. It's just pointing out the flaws. I think you could you can interpret it as attacking it, and you could say, "Oh, these guys did residencies, and they're like, oh, we're all evidence based, and we're like blah blah blah." And now they're just saying evidence sucks, which we kind of are saying that. But like the few evidence, the little evidence that we do have, I don't know, prompts the no evidence. You're right. I mean, it's still better nothing and like okay let's let's step up step off of our high horse right now we have some really great evidence for a lot of things we're not saying that we don't we're not saying that we have no clue how or why what's going on in the body i think we're just saying we have more to learn yeah i i 100 agree it's by no means a a complete diss towards the physical therapy literature that that's that's out there and all the amazing PhDs that have done really good work for physical therapists and their understanding. I think the biggest point is that as much as we know, it all comes back down to this lifelong learning. The thing that they tell you in PT school from day one is as a professional in the physical therapy field, it's constant learning. It's constant learning from day one. Every day you go to work, you should learn something new. And that partly has to do with the, the literature and the world of the literature and staying up to date with the literature. But I think it also partly has to do with new clinical experiences because we know evidence-based practice is not, or evidence-based practice is not entirely evidence. It's clinical perspective or clinical experience and expertise as well as the patient values. I think it's almost impossible not to learn something every day. I would find, I find, find the person that tells themselves that they're not learning anything on a daily basis. Somebody that's just stuck in a hole, in a black hole, unsucking black hole. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm sure there's some PTs out there. No, but I mean, like, sure, you got to learn something, though. You got to yeah, like, gain practice patterns at least. Right at least add your, your opinion of, of one thing versus another. Don't just blindly go through things. Right. And that's not going to work. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting aside really to talk about. And I don't know, like the, the more you push, we, I mean, let's push like everybody, like let's, let's get better at this because we're, we're still not great at this. Right. That's why we have chronic pain. That's why people with chronic pain come to PT for 12 to 14 weeks or 12 to 14 years, if that, like, right. We're not there yet. And I don't know. It's like, that's not satisfying to me. Not satisfying to me either. And honestly, because you mentioned the chronic pain, that's the most frustrating to me is why, why are we giving patients with chronic pain and why are we still approaching it the same way we're approaching someone with, an ACL reconstruction 
and I'm, obviously we've made a ton of progress. Don't get me wrong. We've made a ton of progress with how we're approaching this. Right. Yep. Backpedal. Good. Good. But as a profession, as a whole, there are, that's just countless example after example that I've seen chronic pain handled the wrong way. Right. And I don't, and, and that's the hard thing. Cause I don't know there's, if there's a right way yet and who's to say the, the adage of, if you don't know what to do, strengthen them isn't right. Like, sure. Like maybe input into the body is what they actually need. And they just need a whole heck of a lot of it, more of it at a tempered perspective over a longer period of time. Or like maybe that, maybe that's it. Or do they just need a medical professional that they can trust and that listens to them and that gets them better? Yeah. But even that doesn't have work all the time, right? No, we don't know the answers. Nope. I don't know the answer either. What's uh, talking to me about this. So, so my fellowship right now has really been, I guess it's my first full month down. I'm in my second full month and it's really challenging me from, from my soul of like what has been me as a physical therapist before in the past. As for like a background, like I know you know this, Matt, but like I'm, I'm not a big soft tissue person from the sense mm-hmm. of like, I don't know. When, when I was, was in my clinical rotations, like obviously my CIs had one sort of views and you don't want to adopt their views blindly, but they make good points and good arguments. And mm-hmm. like you're, you see people get better and you get your practice patterns and that's, that's what happens. Some people are really hands-on. Some people are all soft tissue based. Some people aren't. Some people are halfway in between. And it's like this new thing is like, we're really picking apart the biomechanics. We're really picking apart the posture, the observation skills, the, the palpation skills, the uh, connecting all of the dots. And I, and I find it very, at certain points, because I know we just talked about evidence, right? I find it very troubling from the sense that like, how can I connect these dots? Like, there's not even evidence to say what I'm touching is what I'm touching. Right. But at the same time, it's also presented in, in the fashion of this has to be part of your roadmap. And I think this is what has helped m- like me be okay with this to the core of my, my person is like, it has to fit in. Like, we're not just saying we're going to look at biomechanics and call biomechanics what they are and treat the shoulder based on that solely. It's like, it has to fit in with the, the subjective, the person's story, like why they're coming, their history of what they've done in the past, like why their body is the way that it is. So you can pick out, is this just a regular anatomical abnormality or is this an abnormality that we expect based on activity patterns or, or sport patterns or, or thing, or just like things of that nature, like a causative pattern, right? And like then taking into account the, like what the person looks like, where their mechanics or their posture or their everything leads and how that points to their pain or to points away from their pain. Sure. Does it, does that stuff make sense to you? Yes. Because I'm trying to think of an analogy that I can kind of compare it to. What if we 
or what if you and anyone that's listening think about it as writing a book? Think about it as a publisher that's trying to write the biography, right? Biography is the one you write about someone else, right? Yes, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Think about it as you are the author of a biography and you're trying to write the biography of the person sitting in front of you. And I think if you don't have a fundamental understanding of those skills that you just said and you skip that page, when you get to the end of the book, you might not have a full understanding of the person sitting in front of you. I would agree with that. I think, and here's the thing, I think you can get away with not having all of those things. I can think you can get away with my old thinking patterns of not really observing posture, of not really taking into that account and not really like looking into the soft tissue aspects and what it feels like and positioning of things and just like the whole of like the biomechanical physiology of things. And I think you can get a lot of people better. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think you can be lulled into, at least this is what I was lulled into the fact that we need, we need to strengthen, we need to work on these muscles, we need to do things that are proven in this fashion to help build the system around it, to help support, to help encourage good biomechanics, to help encourage full function, right? But that doesn't work with everybody. No. And, and what I'm seeing is, and I, like, sure, this is part of the, we'll call it privilege, of, of seeing some pretty complex patients. And I mean, I would say that would be right now, 75% of my caseload right now, I, I would personally deem them as, to me at least, complex patients. Either one pathology with multiple things going on in the background or multiple pathologies going on at once or big psychosocial factors going on with a long history, like whatever you would deem a moderate eval, I would say would be 75% of my caseload. And with, with those people right now, um, I'm not struggling, but it's, it's been a harder uphill battle. And mm-hmm. I think that opening this window into accepting some of these other things that we might not have quote unquote the evidence for, but it fits in with their picture has really helped me break through some of those barriers. Sure. And I think, so that, go ahead, go ahead. I think that kind of comes back to your, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that comes back to your professional growth as a clinician in recognizing the implementation of evidence. Because if we think, and honestly, if we think about the articles that are out there and the subjects included in the articles, you know that the subjects included in the articles is in a perfect world. But you also know that in your world, treating these moderate to high complexity patients 
they probably don't fit many of the inclusion criteria of the best available evidence out there. Right. It would be hard pressed to find them in a study. Yeah. These are the people They're you don't find in a study. Heterogeneous. Is that your word? Yes. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, they don't, they don't, they don't meet the, they don't meet the inclusion criterion. And so at that point, what it sounds like you're saying to me is that, and this is part of the evidence-based three-tier model or whatever we're referencing these days. That's the last I've heard of. I don't know if you've heard of anything newer than that, but. I don't even know if I've heard of that. Yes, you have. Oh, come on. Don't let Dr. Keating down. The stool, Nick, the stool. <laughs> oh, the stool, the stool. It's, it's a three-pronged model, of course. Can't, I'm sorry, You Chris. can't pull a prong out and still have a standing stool. You'd be on your ass. Exactly. I got you, Chris. And, Nick, to bring it back to what you're talking about, if you pulled one of those legs out, you'd be on your ass right now. If you were only focused on the evidence. Right. Right. And I think like, like I said, like, I think you can get away with that with, with a lot of people. Right. I'm, I'm not here sitting, sitting here saying that I'm special or that my patients are special and, and you're, you're not treating these special patients. I'm treating these. No, I'm just saying in, in general, complex patients, people that come in with multiple things going on and, and you're just like, your decision-making literally changes three times within the same session because their presentation literally evolves within the session. Right. Like, I think, I think what you're saying is that we, that you're agreeing with that we need to peel back the evidence and not just use the evidence for the, the black and the white, but we need to see the gray within that. And we need to be able to interpret that gray and then fit it best into the person in front. Yep. hundred percent. Exactly yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty pumped for for the rest of this fellowship. It's going to be pretty good. Uh, I I would recommend that to you. And now, <laughs> believe it or not, as soon as we finished up recording our episode with uh, Chris Keating, I sent him an email and said, uh, "You just lit the fire, my sir." <laughs> um, did you uh, Did you look up Regis? I did. Yes, I knew you would. <laughs> I looked up Regis. I looked up University of Delaware. There was a few other ones that I looked up. They're all extremely expensive. Yes, they are. But also, it's uh, I'm not entirely sold on fellowship right now, but it is a matter of figuring out what's next, whether that be a fellowship, a PhD, or an EDD. Yeah, I could see you doing any of those three. But, uh, and it's not always what's next, right? Right. It's what's in front of you. Build what's in front of you. Be present. Be in the moment. I'm right. not pushing you. I'm just saying. No, 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 no. You're not pushing me. And I, you're right. I misspoke. It's not about what's next. It's, it's a matter of what's the next best step for me. You didn't misspeak. That's what's on your mind. And, you know, we need to work on that because that's on my mind sometimes too. And right. it's not... What's the next thing in my life? What's the next thing in my career? How can I get to that next side? It's just what we talked about with, uh, with Chris before. If you guys don't know what we're talking about and you've made it this far into this episode, if you haven't listened to our episode with Dr. Chris Keating, you're missing out. 
It's there. Well, but Nick, we're not perfect. We're not perfect. And I can't think of uh, anything else I have to say about the OCS exam besides uh, put in the work, don't start studying too early. Otherwise, you'll burn out. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't have the luxury of studying early. I'm still burning out, so. Okay, That's so good. either way, just be, be prepared to potentially burn out and uh, try to find joys in the little things. Thanks, folks. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. that's all folks (laughs) no i I think i think that's good it's uh it's interesting to to think about the concepts right and to to think about what's going on and the evidence i think this is this really outlines the state of where we're at right now and and how we're budding and we're growing throughout this residency process this postdoc process and i don't think we would be here without it and sure i'm biased in that that sense but sure yeah absolutely and uh, for those of you that are still listening that stuck around, probably maybe five of you, if we're lucky. Um, <laughs> Again, thanks, mom. <laughs> um, basically, long story short, in summary, know the CPGs, know the current concepts. And if you want to supplement your learning, MedBridge is a good opportunity if you want to feel bad about what you know. And EIM is probably an equal alternative. I concur. Well, thanks, folks. Signing off. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your day.